Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is master of merch, Chris Tanay. First of all, I don't know if you're aware, but there are 158 million tracks online. Every streaming service, if you take them all and put them together, they have 158 million songs. Yeah, it would take us several lifetimes to get through all those, but that's not the point. 67.1 million of those tracks have attracted 10 or fewer streams apiece. That's 42% of all the tracks available have 10 or less plays, but it gets even worse. There are 38 million songs online that received zero plays last year. 38 million didn't get a play, and that's 24% of the entire catalog of songs that's online. Now, Spotify is very aware of this, and they pay a lot of money to store all their songs. It's been worked out that they pay around $150 million a year just in storage services. And of course, there's shareholders that want them very much to make money. So then they turn around and they look and they say, well, so many of the songs that we have online get very few plays or no plays at all. Why should we store them and pay the money when no one's really getting any benefit from it? So this is something I've talked about in the past, but it's getting closer and closer. Get ready to pay a fee if you don't get enough plays. Now, here's the thing. Spotify will come to you and say, okay, you didn't get any plays. We're very happy to keep this song online, but you have to pay for the privilege. No play, then you have to pay. And if you decide no and those songs go away, well, it won't really matter because very few consumers would even notice. So Spotify says, well, we used to have 100 million tracks in our library, but now we only have 80 million tracks. That won't make a dent in anybody's perception of the service. So this may very much be like Twitter, where you have to pay for that blue badge. Well, the same thing might happen here, where in order to make sure that your songs are online, you're going to have to pay for that privilege. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Recording Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on the latest cutting-edge recording technology, multiple ways to mic over 70 different instruments, a new chapter on recording immersive audio, new Hitmaker Engineer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer. That's go.bobbyosinski.com forward slash recording dash engineer. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, anyone who's ever used a Neve console is a fan, and you know how good things can sound going through an old Neve. But Rupert Neve actually sold the company in 1972. He was still consulting for various companies, he was still fixing his consoles, and George Martin came to him and said, can you build me the finest input modules ever made? So Rupert started the Focusrite company, and came up with his ISA 110 preamp EQ module, and later the ISA 130 dynamics module. 
and these cartridges would just slip into a Neve console. Well, these became so popular that there were studios that came to Rupert and said, we'd like a full console based on these modules. So Rupert then made the Forte console, and that appeared in 1988. There were only two of these consoles manufactured. One went to Electric Lady in New York, and the other went to Master Rock in London. The problem was they were so expensive that they forced Focusrite out of business. So about that time, Phil Dudridge, who had just sold Soundcraft Electronics, had a bunch of money and nothing to do. He bought all the Focusrite assets in 1989. And of course, the Focusrite console already had a huge following. So there was a big demand for those consoles again. So we started building them. But only 10 consoles were ever made. The largest one, maybe the largest music console ever built, was installed in Bop Studios in South Africa in 1991. Now, this may be the most expensive studio ever built. There is no expense spared. They don't have the exact figures, but it's been determined that there were somewhere between 22 and $91 million spent on this studio. So you'd think, wait a second, this is South Africa. How did that happen? while the new South African government wanted to raise the profile of the country, and they wanted to make it a recording destination. The money came from the government pension fund. A couple of years later, there was a whole new government that came in, decided this wasn't a good deal, and leased Bop Studios to South African Broadcasting. They operated the studio for about seven years, but then the lease wasn't renewed. So what happened was, powers turned off, doors locked, and everybody forgot about it for about 20 years. Over the years, there were lots of tries to resuscitate the studio, and none were successful. However, there was this fantastic console that was there, and it was still in pretty good shape. It was recently purchased by Platinum Studios in Phoenix and installed in a brand new studio there. So how big is this console? It's 26 feet wide. 26 feet, this is bigger than most rooms. It's 116 channels with 16 aux ends, and it was completely wired in silver cabling. So before they could install the console, they had to completely recap the console, which means all of the capacitors, and there's a lot of them, had to be replaced. Plus, 4,600 LEDs, they were all replaced as well. So this is one of the biggest and best-sounding consoles ever made, and it's finally back online in Phoenix. My guest this week is Chris Denae, who helped artists like the Rolling Stones, Taylor Swift, Keith Urban, Luke Bryan, and Iron Maiden sell their merch products. Chris knows what sells, why it sells, and what doesn't, and he's put together his Rock Your Merch boot camp to make sure that artists and bands make their merch stand out and not make some common mistakes. During the interview, Chris and I spoke about working in Taylor Swift's warehouse, what most artists don't get about merch, how to market your merch, how merch has changed through the years, the most important thing you can do to sell merch, and much more. I spoke with Chris via Zoom from Studio in Nashville. All right, well, let's go back to the beginning. Let's talk about you getting into the business, into the music business. So let's talk about your playing career. Oh, okay. Um, uh, well, I mean, I started playing guitar when I was like 12 and a half, thanks to uh, this band, Kiss. Uh, <laughs> They influenced a lot of people, made me want to play guitar and um, basically dove into the music industry head first when I turned 18. Uh, simultaneously, I got a job teaching guitar at a music store uh, that where I ended up taking lessons when I was a kid. 
I also worked backstage production at Bogarts, a uh, pretty well-known um, live music venue in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I'm from. Uh, and then I also worked a couple days a week as a salesperson at another music store. Uh, so I just kind of dove right in and started performing around town and mostly um, cover bands at first, then originals for many years. And uh, been a guitar teacher almost 40 years uh, now. I still teach, just not as much as I, I used to. I do have two online guitar courses. Um, but back in the uh, 80s, some friends of mine um, befriended a guy who uh, worked for Van Halen doing their merch. And then uh, um, he was out on the road with them for a couple of years. And then when David Lee Roth split off, he went and worked with Dave, like most of the Van Halen people did. And uh, so my best friend ended up going out on the road with him to assist on the tour. And through that, I ended up working some shows with those guys. So I ended up doing some merch on the side for uh, David Lee Roth and then um, Poison later on because Poison had opened for David Lee Roth. So we kind of knew their merch guy. Um, and then I just kind of, you know, pursued my own musical career, both teaching and performing and writing, recording, uh, focused a lot on uh, film and TV placements. And I've had several, uh, mostly TV, but a couple uh, indie film things, too, and stuff and uh, moved to Nashville in 2008, to, uh, mostly for songwriting. Dove kind of into the country songwriting market, studied with some great songwriters here, wrote with some number one hit writers, played for them, played with them, worked with them, um, learned a lot about the craft of songwriting and uh, recording, having my own studio so I could demo my stuff. Um, and then the country music world kind of changed a bit, both from the business side of songwriting and plus some of the songs that were coming out and it wasn't really my thing. So started getting back more into the rock thing that I grew up playing here in Nashville. And uh, lo and behold, my friend that got me into the merch thing way back when reached out to me in 2016 and said, hey, we could use you for some shows if you're interested. And I was like, well, yeah, I enjoyed doing it. The money was really good. So uh, in 2016, I started working um, uh, shows, doing merch on the side. And uh, since then, gosh, I, I've worked for like just about everybody you can name. I mean, everybody from Kiss, Iron Maiden, Slipknot, Keith Urban, uh luke bryan miranda lambert i did billy joel and chris stapleton recently i've done a couple shows at the rolling stones did the motley crew def leppard stadium uh tour show uh and i also worked uh before that for uh taylor swift off and on at her warehouse where she has all her merch for uh, a couple years off and on so i've got a lot of experience doing the merch and i still do that i do a lot of um shows with alice cooper when he's in the area and uh again just literally dozens of other bands so one thing I've, I've always been into merch and I just found a lot of artists and bands just really kind of fall short when it comes to their merch. Um, and so uh, I ended up deciding to take all my experience and knowledge and put together a course to try to help them out called Rock Your Merch. Before we get into merch, I want to hear more about Taylor Swift's warehouse. So what did you learn from that? I can only divulge so much because I signed a number of NDAs. Uh. Uh, you know, they don't like a lot of that out, but I will say, um, Pretty much like like Kiss or a lot of other bands, if you can put the, her name on it, she's got it. I mean, she has over 500 SKUs and uh, 500 pieces of merch, um, really knows how to do it. She's a very smart person. I did work with her, her dad, Scott, several times there. He's a brilliant person, a wonderful guy, very, very brilliant on the business side. I actually learned quite a few things from him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, everything from obviously like shirts and posters, but, you know, she's got her own line of perfume and... Uh, you know, one of the smart things that she does uh, and that all the smart bands with their merch do is they kind of have something like every price point. You know, you've got something in the real budget friendly thing, which makes a nice little add on if you're buying a couple things and, you know, you want to round it up to an even hundred dollars or something on up to, you know, 
items that cost a couple hundred dollars because sometimes you have those diehard fans that just want those unique things that not everybody else has. But yeah, we did, we did a lot of the mail order fulfillment. Uh, and I'll tell you one other thing that was really cool uh, that, that, you know, I have so much respect for her and her team and stuff. Uh, one of the other things is like randomly, they would just throw in autograph photos in some of the orders as a nice surprise for the fans. Um, so I thought that was like super cool. You know, they wouldn't even be expecting they were, you know, actually signed by her. Uh, but, you know, just random orders would just go down the line and just toss one here, toss one there. We didn't know who was getting it. Uh, so it was just totally random. And, you know, can you imagine, you know, 15 year old girl open up her package and there's an autograph Taylor Swift photo she wasn't expecting. So I always said that was really, really cool for her to do. Do you know Rick Barker? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, you of course. Yeah. yeah. I remember Rick telling me that when he managed her in the early days, that she would spend hours and hours, and when she was doing mall tours, hours and hours talking to her fans afterwards and wouldn't leave until the last fan left. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I met her once before I worked for her. She was just, uh, her and her uh, record team, they were doing some um, live video stuff on Music Row here in Nashville. And I just happened to be driving by and saw her pulled over and I asked her for a photo. And uh, she, you know, was a sweetheart. She said, absolutely. You know, she said, yeah, absolutely. And uh, she actually grabbed my camera and took the photo herself. So she actually took the selfie with us. So I thought that was pretty cool of her. And Yeah, definitely. Okay, so when we get to merch, you mentioned before about artists don't get it. So what is it that they don't get? What What is the problem? They, they don't put enough effort or thought into it. Um, the thing I see a lot of times is, you know, especially on the indie level, is bands, they just kind of throw a shirt on a hanger and just kind of hope they sell one or two a night. You know, I mean, they're so focused on their writing, the songs, the music, the performance, which are all important things. And they should be focused on those. So that's very important. But they just kind of treat their merch as like an afterthought, you know, just a, a, an add-on to their show, you know, like, oh, yeah, by the way, we've got a shirt over there. Um, and they don't really display them very well. They don't put a lot of thought into thinking of what's going to sell. So they sometimes end up spending a lot of money with boxes of shirts and stuff that they can't even give away because they just didn't do it right. And uh, yeah, just not really putting enough attention on it. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Banzoo or not, but they've done yeah. a couple of studies. Their newest one just came out and uh, broke the like the million dollar mark. And even in this one, merch is, you know, by far, hands down, the, the number one income stream for uh, independent artists. Uh, the last study they did, it was almost six times as much as everything else combined, which includes digital downloads, ticket sales, fan subscriptions, streaming, tip jar, sync. You know, merch was almost six times as much. So, I mean, that should tell you something that, hey, you know, if you're a band or artist or anybody, even comedians, magicians, anybody, if you got merch, you really need to put some focus into that because that's probably your most lucrative outlet. I mean, you know, bands like artists like Taylor Swift or a Kiss or an Iron Maiden, I mean, they just make a killing in March because they really know how to do it right. How important is the graphic element involved? Very important. Extremely important. That's one of the things I, I, I talk about in my courses that that's one of the biggest mistakes people make. Indie bands like they'll just put their name, their band name on a shirt and hope that everyone's going to want to buy it because it has their band name on it. You know, and sure, you might sell to your, you know, your friends, your family, your boyfriend, your girlfriend or whatever, but you're not going to sell it to people you don't know when you go to a, a town you've never played before just because it has your name on it. Um, only, only a handful of artists can really get away with that. And you're talking like the major, major ones. <clears throat> you really need something that's, you know, a, an eye catching uh, design of some sort. Uh, for for example, uh, one thing like I, I, you know, I talk about it. <laughs> I even have one sitting here. This is a, my five finger death punch ball cap. I'm not even a big five finger death punch fan, but I love that ball cap. So I bought one. I have a breaking Benjamin shirt. I don't really care for breaking Benjamin, but I love the shirt. 
I wear a lot of red and black and their designs tie in with just my normal wardrobe. Um, so a lot of times I bought merch from people or bands that like, I didn't necessarily care for their music or wasn't a fan, but because I really liked the style or it connected with me for some, in some way, you know, we've all heard of things where, you know, someone says, Oh, you know, Hey, yeah, I like that band. Oh, I don't know. I never heard them. I just like the shirt, you know? Yes. But you're in the business of merch, so you're exposed to it. How about people that aren't exposed to the merch? I mean, marketing is a big deal on this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and like, especially online is, is a big thing too, you know, with, with your merch, um, you know, we all think about like selling merch at shows, but I mean, we all know what happened in 2020 to live performances, you know, everything came to a screeching halt. So, you know, that's the thing is I say, okay, we weren't able to make a living performing, but if you had merch on your website, you could still, uh, you know, make income that way, but also you'd stay in your fans forefront. You know, a lot of artists were doing the live stream and that was great that everyone kind of found an outlet and jumped on board. That was, you know, really, you know, smart thinking. And even that, if you had really good merch on your website, you tie that into your live stream, that boosts your income, you know, right there. Uh, some artists were writing in and recording songs and that's great too. But, you know, how long does it take to write, record, mix, master a song, and then get it out to the distributors to get on Spotify? I mean, you're talking a month or two, you know, to get one out. Whereas if you got someone in the band or a friend who's a graphic designer, I mean, you could have a new shirt every week if you wanted to. I mean, I'm not recommending doing that, but I'm just saying you could feasibly have a new design up on your website or something else, not even just a shirt, but some other piece of merch that you could sell, uh, you know, to still have income coming in and again, stay in your fans, you know, forefront. Okay. Well, speaking of which, then what is the most popular piece of merch? Is it still t-shirts? It's shirts. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why I... I talk about that a lot but i also talk about like things like there's a lot of unique items and and stuff uh that you can if you understand your demographic that you can uh sell that people will be interested in you know there's still other popular things such as like wristbands hats bandanas koozies stuff like that but the shirt is you know when almost anyone thinks of uh, merchandise that's the first thing their mind goes to is the shirt and the other reason why i think the shirt is such an important thing to focus on is because i i like to call shirts paid advertising. The difference is you're the one getting paid. Someone is buying your shirt and they're walking around with your band's logo on it. And that's a great conversation starter. Or someone says, oh yeah, I've heard of that band, but what do they sound like? You know, have you ever seen them? And, you know, you start a conversation and that's so important. Um, I, I actually had a, a guy come to one of my uh, band shows once because uh, he was happening to wear on a Kiss shirt. And so I started talking to him about his Kiss shirt. And I said, oh yeah, by the way, you like Iron Maiden? No, I love Iron Maiden. Well, I happen to play in an Iron Maiden tribute band. And we were playing like 40 minutes away. So, and this was just at a truck stop. And so, you know, he ended up coming to the show because I told him, hey man, we're playing up the road tonight. Come see us. And that's what started. It was that t-shirt, you know, was the whole conversation starter. How important is an image, uh, a graphic on both sides of a t-shirt? It's obviously can be beneficial. That's a thing where you kind of have to weigh out the cost differential and what you're selling your shirt for, because obviously it's going to cost a little bit more to do that. The only time I think that really makes a difference for most uh people who buy merch is more on the on a bigger level and they always want the concert dates on the back so even if you're an indie band and you're, you're an independent band and you're like touring around regionally and you've got a lot of dates worth putting on there it could be a good idea it could be a, you know something that might help increase sales uh because i know with the show shows that i've worked there's a lot of times someone wanted a shirt and they didn't buy it because there weren't dates on the back now again that's you were talking more you know arena level acts there but definitely on a smaller level that can help, you know, if you've got if you've got some dates worth putting or even a special event. 
that's always a good thing. You could have like your band, let's say you got your regular band uh, logo shirt that you sell at every show, but now all of a sudden, you know, you're playing on this special outdoor festival thing just for one day, have, you know, some shirts printed up with that, that design on the back. And then people have a memento from that one event. In addition to having your normal band shirt. That's a good idea. What merch piece has the best margin? Usually handcrafted things. If you, uh, you know, if you, if you're not factoring how long it might take you to do it, if you can do something kind of friendly, like, you know, a, a hand painted item or something, uh, obviously there's not much cost in that. Uh, and you could sell it for a pretty high dollar. Uh, you know, I mean, God, Paul Stanley of Kiss sells this for thousands, but that's Paul Stanley. But yes, you know, things like that, anything handcrafted, you, you can generally ask a lot more and all you've got in, in it is really a lot of time, you know, your time. Um, so, uh, you know, you obviously want to factor in that too. You don't want to, you know, sell something that co- takes you 40 hours to make for 20 bucks. But yeah, that's a good way to, you know, have a, have a good margin there for sure. If you were to advise somebody about doing merch and let's say they just haven't done it before, what would be the first step? Make sure you have a good graphics designer for sure. Even if you're, even if you don't do a fancy design or something on your, on your shirt, uh, just something that looks professionally done. And, you know, it could be, you know, a friend or someone in your band if they're really good at it. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, people that do that, uh, you know, sites like Fiverr and stuff like that. You can find people very affordably uh, to do that. And someone that kind of understands what you're trying to achieve with your merch, preferably someone who might be a, a fan of your music or at least like that genre. That always helps out because then they understand the demographic a little bit more. One of the things I see and, and you know, it's funny because I've worked for all these major acts, but even those guys make a lot of mistakes. I mean, there's some that we're just scr- scratching our head going, what were they thinking when they came out with this design? Because a lot of times, you know, they get people who are paid high dollar that are just strictly graphics people uh, that are outsourced from the label or, or management or whatever. And they come up with what they think is a really cool design, but it has nothing to do with their audience, with the band's, you know, fan base or something, or uh, it just doesn't, you know, click with people. So it, it's very important that you have something like that, that you have something that's going to resonate. Because what I always tell people is when you're selling your merch, you're actually selling a lifestyle. You know, you have to think about your demographic. That's so important. I mean, someone like Jimmy Buffett, who I've worked before, does a killing in merch. And all of his shirts are like coral and pastel colors. I mean, sure, they got the, the palm leaves and the beach scene and stuff like that. But just down to the color, you know, that appeals to the whole Yacht Rock crowd. So, you know, there's all kinds of things like that that you have to kind of think about as far as, you know, reaching who your fan base is. Yeah, Jimmy Buffett's amazing. I mean, he even has a retirement community in Florida now and his own cruise ship. Pretty amazing how, you know, considering it started from one song, really. And that's awesome because, I mean, artists like that, you know, they, they, they're starting to think outside the box. And that's what, you know, a lot of indie artists need to kind of do more of. I mean, yes, the shirt, I think, is still the number one, but there's a lot of other things outside of that, too, you can throw in. You know, you mentioned before about demographics. Do certain merch items work better in certain parts of the country than others? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Cincinnati, where I'm originally from, and I still work a lot of shows up there, we call it a koozie town. I mean, even though they're low, low budget items, we sell a ton of koozies up there every show I work. As a matter of fact, like literally, we've told the band's merch people, to, they'll bring us a box of 300 koozies before the show. We'll even ask for more. And they think we're insane. And we're like, no, we'll sell 500 koozies tonight. You know, sizes, uh, that happens. Um, not to be politically incorrect, but in the South, a lot of people eat fried food. So there's a lot of bigger people in the South. So, you know, you're going to sell a lot of, you know, 3X and 4X, you know, down South. Whereas if you go to LA, where everyone is a fitness buff, you know, you can sell a lot more small and mediums. 
So, you know, yes, down to the size, uh, things vary from place to place. But yeah, obviously, you're not going to sell, you know, many hoodies if you go play the Bahamas, you know, but you're going to sell a lot if you're in, you know, playing Minnesota in February. So that being said, I was in Jamaica once it was 75 degrees and everybody was in leather coats and they're, all the natives, <laughs> they're, all, they're all bundled up. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you, uh, we saw a lot, a lot of uh, hoodies a lot of times at outdoor shows, even during the summer, because like sometimes, you know, it'll be like 80 degrees in the afternoon and then at night, all of a sudden, it drops down to 40 and everybody's freezing. So everybody wants a hoodie. So, you know, thinking of things like that is always important too. Um, outdoor shows, you know, if you do a lot of outdoor venues, you have rain ponchos. You can sell them for five or 10 bucks and you'll just blow through them like they're, like they're M&Ms or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. So when when you're doing the merch thing with the various acts, are you, are these just like one-off shows, or are you going on the road with them? A lot of them are one-offs. Alice, I went on the road with and did a few out with Alice Cooper. Uh, but some of my I've worked multiple shows with, like Kiss, Iron Maiden, uh, the Slayer. I've done several shows with those guys. Did a couple with the Rolling Stones because uh, I do I do those more regionally as opposed to actually touring with the acts. So anything, I mean, I've gone. Let's see, I've I've traveled about eight hours outside of Nashville here. Uh, to work shows. So anything kind of within an eight hour range. Uh, I've done a few in Atlanta, St. Louis, a lot in Cincinnati, Indianapolis, uh, further up in Indy, Michigan, just kind of all over the area. Yeah. Going on the road is another animal altogether. <laughs> yeah. I, I might end up doing a little bit of that this year, just because uh, my friend who got me back into this just said that this can be a very busy year for tours and they're going to be shorthanded. So I'm I'm actually scoping out some additional training next week with a buddy of mine here on because when you're actually working for the band you do a lot of paperwork stuff and fortunately fortunately with what I've had to do I haven't had to deal with any of that but uh, except for my own band but yeah so there's some things like that that I, I might end up going out on the road and do some some small tours with some uh, club acts and stuff this year. Well, speaking of paperwork, I guess it's all electronic now. Uh yeah yeah a lot of it is yeah yeah uh, there's some apps that uh, a lot of them they use uh, my band we use Square and that's really nice because it keeps track of everything pretty pretty well but you know I have my own little sheets because I handle the merch for my band and I just like to you know have hard copies so I can look at all these different papers and see okay this show we did this this show we did this you know what do we sell more of here merch in general has it changed from when you first started till now prices. <laughs> Yeah, it has and that there's more variety of things. You know, back in the day, I mean, it was basically a couple of types of shirts, maybe a bandana uh, and a ball cap. Uh, now, you know, there's those, but there's all kinds of other things. I mean, you know, some of the bigger artists sell guitars, some have coffee, uh, you know, just uh, vinyl, um, a lot of those nowadays. Just, yeah, all kinds of different different items now. It, it's you know, it, it's kind of exciting in a way because every show I work, I'm, you know, so anxious to say, what do they got? What do they got? What do they got? You know, I want to see all the cool stuff that they have and and whatnot. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot more variety now for sure. Do the uh, bigger acts, are, are they selling CDs as well, just out of curiosity? Not usually. Some will bring out vinyl because it's kind of more of an, an, uh, a unique thing still. Uh, most of the time they don't. Some of the support acts on the bigger tours will. Uh, and, and I'll get back to one Really, really important tip here on that in a moment. But um, yeah, most of the bigger bands don't because they just sell so many, you know, CDs online and through, you know, whatever online retailers, whether it be Amazon or Best Buy or, or whatever. Um, it's a lot of product to kind of carry and CDs, you know, doesn't take much to add up and wait. So it's a lot of lifting around for a lot of stuff. So not too many of the bigger acts do, but a lot of times, you know, a, a support act will and they're they're really smart to do that. Here's the, here's the tip I was going to say. If you're a support band and you get on a bigger bill like that, 
hands down, the most important thing you can do is after you're done playing is come to the merch booth and sign CDs. There are so many opening bands that were good bands that like we sold maybe one or two. And we're talking like a major show while you're playing like 15,000 people. So, you know, sell one or two CDs. Then they announce they're going to be up at the merch booth afterwards. And bam, I mean, we'll sell out 50 or 100 CDs just because they came up and met with their fans and stuff because people want that. They want they want to get it signed. They want to go home with, you know, their autograph on it. Uh, they're much more likely to buy it. So, I mean, any band, really, you should hang out at your merch booth after your show. I mean, that's just so important. At least someone in the band, even if the whole band can't, uh, someone at least should. Uh, but yeah, especially if you're on a support act for a bigger a- band, I mean, you, you definitely have to do that. That makes such a difference in your merch sales. What would be the typical product mix for a support band, for instance? You mean as far as like how many items or? Yes, how many items? Uh, a lot of times they are they are kind of limited, and that's just in negotiations with you know the band that they're out in sport with. So they might be limited to like you know two shirts maybe and four or five other items. Uh, some of it they just don't have the budget to have a lot of different stuff, and it kind of makes sense because you're a support band. You don't want to have a lot of stuff that you're having to transport because one of two things: either you know you're paying someone you know driving a small box truck to transport the stuff, or you're putting on your tour bus. Uh, in the bay where it's going to take up more room, or you're actually paying the main band to put your merch on their truck. Mm. So you don't want any more merch taking up a lot of space and having to pay you know more for stuff that, that you're not going to sell a lot of. So yeah, a lot of times they're limited or like a lot of times like um, at Monsters on the Mountain, uh, all the bands were limited to two shirts because there were so many bands. I mean, they were like, I don't know, like 15 bands a day or something ridiculous. So you can't have, there's only so much room in the in the... <laughs> you know, where the merch is being sold in the, in the, in the booth. So yeah, you can't have too much stuff. And, uh, and so yeah, each of those bands, they were limited to two shirts only. Tell me about your course. Oh yeah. It's called rock your merch. Like I said, I, I put it together because I've just seen, you know, artists missing the boat so much on their merchandise. We're just not understanding what sells, what doesn't, what kind of styles to think about, what sizes, what colors, uh, I have a whole module in there just on building a merch display that looks great and presentable. I actually take them step by step as because I made the course actually while I was building the merch display for my band, Power Slave. And so you actually kind of see me do it and then all the changes that I made and then other add-ons. Um, there's several modules in it. There's some just on, on sizes, styles, uh, understanding your demographic, unique items, high dollar items. Like we talk, touched on here briefly about geography things to think about when you're in different areas. Um, so it kind of really goes a lot into detail. And I show a lot of examples, show examples of like even some big acts that I've worked for where they missed the boat on things uh, and the mistakes that they made so that, you know, the independent artists don't make the same mistakes. Yeah. So I just, I just decided to put all this experience together to try to help other bands, because as far as I know, there's no one else out there with this kind of information that they're sharing. So uh, there's definitely a need for it. And with merch being such a, a big source of revenue, you know, I always tell artists that, you know, if merch is not your number one revenue source, it should at least be in your top three. If it's not in your top three, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. It's such a, such a big, big income source. And it's just, and it's also just, again, about keeping your, your name in front of your fans and stuff, you know, not even just someone wearing the shirt as a conversation piece, but someone's looking around their house and they see, you know, that refrigerator mag, refrigerator magnet on their fridge, you know, or something like that, or they have the button on the jacket or, uh, you know, a wristband or whatever. So, you know, it keeps you in the forefront of their mind. And then they go, oh, man, I haven't listened to that CD in a while. Let me pop that in, you know. 
So uh, again, merch is just so important on so many levels. Where do you see the merch business going or, or just merch in general? Do you see it evolving, changing the trends? Not really much that, that I can, I can foresee because other than again, there being a wider variety of items, it hasn't changed a whole lot since I started way back in the eighties. Cause again, if you're traveling stuff on the road, you, you can only carry so much product. Uh, like even my band, we have like, three different shirt designs, six different styles, but we only carry one style of each shirt on the road with us because we just only have so much room to transport stuff. We got the rest of it all on our website. Um, and so that's another thing you can do with your merch. You can always have more styles on your website that aren't available uh, you know, at your, at your shows. We sell just your standard unisex concert style t-shirt at our shows, but on our website, my band, we've got zip up hoodie, pullover hoodie, long sleeve tank top, uh, ladies cut, a ladies V-neck, you know, and different colors too. Whereas at our shows, we just carry uh, black. Because the other thing is too, we don't know which uh, places we're going to sell more of because most of the places we've only played once or twice so far. But they, uh, there's uh, plenty of other, you know, variables available on our website. So I think that's something, you know, definitely, uh, you know, artists mixing in more of the online presence with their merch into their live show. You know, that's a smart thing to do. And that's, something that we have now, you know, available to do as well. You can have many more items that you can't, you know, carry into a show or you just maybe don't want to because they're too fragile. You know, uh, some artists will sell like coffee mugs or glassware. And you, even with vinyl, I mean, vinyl is still a big seller, but God, there's so many times I've gone to show and you just open up and the record's broken. Um, so you got to be careful about that sort of thing. Uh, any fragile items, because if they're traveling in the back of a van or a truck, you're hitting bumpy roads, it's getting knocked over and and whatnot. What is the website where people can? So, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's rockyourmerch.net. The rockyourmerch.net. Uh, there is a free three day boot camp that you can sign up for. Um, it covers the three biggest mistakes artists make in more detail and shows plenty of examples. So that's something free that anyone can sign up for. And at some point, uh, by the time this is airing, I may have condensed that down to a single uh, workshop. But either way, there'll be something free you can sign up for that gives you all that information. Okay, last question, Chris. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? One of my favorite quotes is, don't fuck the people you meet on the way up because you meet them on the way down too. And that was Ozzy Osbourne in The Decline of Western Civilization Part Two: The Metal Years. He says it at the end and I've just, that's always stuck with me and I've always thought that was so brilliant. Uh, a lot of times, you know, a younger artists, you know, they start to get some fame and fortune and it kind of goes to their head and uh, you know, we all see now bands that were once big are, you know, now lucky if they can, you know, draw a few hundred people in a theater and, and stuff. So, you know, it's all cyclical, goes up and down. So, you know, just be a good person to, you know, other bands you're playing with. Uh, you know, we're all in this together. Like the saying goes, none of us make it out of life alive. So, uh, you know, just, you know, try to help each other out. You can find out more about Chris and his merch course at rockyourmerch.net. That's rockyourmerch.net. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, 
Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Music